And I was super intimidated when I started going to the main state house. And whenever I, you know, got up to testify on a bill, I feel like every committee member was looking at me like, who is this, you know, 12 year old that came to the Capitol today to testify um, because I look very young, but I kind of loved that and thrived off that and, you know, maybe use that to my advantage. I loved when you open your mouth and you start talking and you, you know, are clearly really educated. I love watching their facial expressions change and really, you know, tuning in and listening to me. And it's like, oh, this isn't, you know, a high school kid. This is someone that is really passionate about this issue and cares about it. And I kind of thrive on, you know, changing people's opinions. That's Lindsay Burgoyne, and she's the head of advocacy and policy work at Protect Our Winters. For those of you who don't know Protect Our Winters, well, you should, which is why I wanted to talk with Lindsay. Protect Our Winters is also known as POW, and we are a passionate crew of diehards, professional athletes, and outdoor industry brands mobilizing the outdoor sports community to lead the charge towards positive climate action. POW focuses on educational initiatives, political advocacy, and community-based activism. And I can honestly say that I am a product of POW's work. Before working with POW, I had never really gotten engaged in political issues. Quite honestly, I found politics complicated, confusing, uninteresting, and polarizing. But through my passion for our natural environment and the health of our planet and humanity in general, I decided to commit to working with POW back in 2009. The more I got involved with POW throughout the years, the more I began to see just how vital policy is to cleaning up our act. It's not to say that policy is the only way, but it is a critical factor in helping make sure that our individual actions are indeed what's best for the environment and will help us further reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as a nation. Hi everyone, I'm Olympic snowboarder Gretchen Blyler. Welcome to my podcast, The Art of Living Extraordinarily, where I dive deep into the stories of those who have had the courage to blaze their own trails. We learn the deeper motives that drive these individuals, how they face fears, the challenges and obstacles that they've faced, how they get through them, and the biggest lessons that they've learned along the way to living their dreams. Being a blonde, petite, young-looking 22-year-old woman definitely set Lindsay apart while she was working in the Maine State Legislature. Instead of being frustrated that her looks created a stereotype where she wasn't taken seriously by the older white men she typically worked with, she decided to use her disarming looks as strategic edge to approach people in a more friendly way than they were used to and get into conversations she may never have been invited into otherwise. She's from rural Maine, where there are more cows than people. She grew up in an active, political-minded family that didn't have a lot of money but the outdoors was their playground. She learned to ice climb with her dad at 15, and she got her degree in geology. She actually grew up not liking politics, but when she got this job working in the Maine legislature, she found that the people there were actually just regular people, teachers and plumbers, and they came together for a few months of the year to make the laws of the state, and they needed to hear from people who were educated and passionate about Maine's issues. Skiing is one of Lindsay's foundational passions, and currently she's logged 29 months of uninterrupted skiing. Oh, and by the way, she broke her tib-fib three miles out in the backcountry this past February, and even with a terribly broken leg, she still somehow managed to keep this record going strong. Needless to say, this is a woman of incredible complexity, intelligence, passion, and serious drive. 
In our conversation, she breaks down why policy is so important in our fight against climate change. She tells the story behind why she highly recommends that everyone take that ski bum winter that they dream of. And the awakening of the outdoor sports industry's tremendous economic power and influence and how we're only just starting to see how we can use this power for good. If you're a person who's concerned about climate change and you've been wanting to do more, this is an episode you're not going to want to miss. Before we jump in, a shout out to the sponsors who make this podcast possible. Thank you to Alex Supply Co., which is a sustainable lifestyle company I started with my husband. Alex actually was founded when my husband, Chris, found himself standing over a sink full of smelly reusable water bottles. Incredibly frustrated because these things are impossible to clean, especially when you put smoothies and lemon water in them like we do. That's when an idea came to him. Let's create a reusable bottle that opens in the middle so you can actually clean it. Makes sense, right? Just like that, with one small change, a massive problem was solved. And because we truly believe it's our everyday choices that add up to an extraordinary life, the name Alex stands for Always Live Extraordinarily. Besides Alex Bottle, we've recently released some other new incredible reusable products to help you live sustainably on the journey towards living your extraordinary. And right now, you can get 20% off on your purchase at alexbottle.com with code GRETCHEN. G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N. This episode is also brought to you by Dragonfly June Kombucha. Dragonfly June is an organic effervescent probiotic tea that is absolutely delicious. My good friend Jacqueline launched this company and her June is handcrafted in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley in small batches using high quality organic ingredients and local Colorado honey. The difference between June and kombucha is this. Most kombucha is made with black tea and sugar. June is made with green tea and honey. So no cane sugar and you get all the health benefits of green tea and honey in addition to the healthy acids and probiotics from the June kombucha. Not only that, but drinking June helps to support your local bee populations and helps keep our local beekeepers in business. Dragonfly June's flavors are composed of organic fair trade and ethically harvested tea, organic herbs, filtered Rocky Mountain water, and local honey. So there is so much love and intention put into this delicious drink that is not only good for you, but it's good for our earth too. Drink June and be well. Check it out at dragonflyjune.com and June is spelled J-U-N. And if you live in the Aspen Roaring Fork Valley, look for it on the shelves at Natural Grocers, Clark's Market, and local Aspen retail outlets. Now for Lindsay Burgoyne. I'm excited to have you on the podcast because to me, you are someone in this world who's really like walking the walk and talking the talk. You are an athlete and you're an outdoor adventurer yourself. And you also are, um, you've gotten your master's in environmental law and policy, and you've been POW's head of advocacy for the past two years. Um, so this is such a cool and unique combination of things, I think. So um, I would love to just dive into your story and know, like, where did you come from and what was your family dynamic and how did you decide to dedicate your life's work to environmental issues and climate change and policy of all things. And on top of that, be this incredible athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Well, definitely thank you for, for having me today. I'm really excited to kind of dive in and talk a little bit more about Protect Our Winters too. But I grew up in rural Maine um, in a town of 2,300 that we joke there are more cows than people 
And I think for a lot of Mainers, you know, it's an economy that really thrives on on fishing and farming and forestry and kind of everyone who grows up there grows up outside and outdoors. And that was definitely something that was really important to my family. I think, you know, a lot of people that have dedicated their careers to the environment had some sort of really early connection at a young age. And my dad used to put my, my sister and I, um, not together at the same time, but in backpacks, um, and go out cross country skiing when he was home from work and kind of grew up in a, you know, cross country skiing, hiking, backpacking family. We didn't have a ton of money growing up. And I think, you know, the outdoors really provide something that's accessible to everyone and to every family, kind of regardless of, of what you can afford or what you can't. Um, and so I feel really fortunate for that. And one of the, one of my favorite things um, that, you know, has kind of been a tradition in my family is my dad, uh, when he was, when I was kind of in high school, he really wanted a, a climbing partner. And so he decided to teach me at 15 how to ice climb. And wow. he started taking me, you know, in the backcountry and doing a lot of mountaineering and climbing. And um, I feel like that's kind of when I, you know, grew this really strong appreciation for the outdoors and for mountains and was really curious about mountains. So I ended up at college shortly after that and um, not surprisingly came out with a degree in geology. And, um, you know, I think every 18 year old goes to college thinking like, I know exactly what I want to do. And, you know, I was going to study international relations in Spanish, but the reality is like, you don't know yourself at that point and you're still learning who you are. And so not surprisingly being somebody that really connected with the environment, I loved all the geoscience courses and got really into soil science and got pretty nerdy um, there. And when I finished, I, you know, I think at that time um, when I was in school, when you studied environmental sciences or environmental studies, it just has such a big umbrella. You could do so much with that kind of degree and there's not really a very strict career path. Um, and so I had kind of trouble figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I definitely started looking at some PhD programs and, and um, meeting soil scientists that were, you know, working in basement labs and realized pretty quickly that um, I'm a really social person and that mm. wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> yeah. And just kind of based on every summer when I was in college, I worked in this backcountry hut system uh, in the Northeast uh, along the Appalachian Trail in New Hampshire. These uh, backcountry huts are owned by the Appalachian Mountain Club. And I worked there every summer and um, just had such an incredible experience getting to live in the backcountry and, you know, meet all kinds of different people from people that hike the Appalachian Trail to, um, you know, people that are coming on one night to venture into the mountains um, and maybe haven't been there before. And that organization actually had a policy position open up um, and I applied for that and got that and started working on policy. And I actually remember when I got that job, I was thinking to myself, oh, I don't really know if this is me. I don't really like politics. I grew up in a pretty active uh, political family and I never really wanted to do anything with it because it was always he said, she said, you know, this politician said this, this one got this much money, this one. And it just felt like such a game and so fake. Um, but when I started working in the Maine legislature, I really realized that, you know, at least in Maine, the uh, legislature is just normal people. They're, you know, teachers, mm -hmm. they're plumbers, they're, you know, and they come together for a few months a year to, to make the laws of the state. And they need people who are educated on issues to come in and talk to them. And so I think this word of lobbying always had this really negative connotation in my life. And, you know, the reality is, at the core, lobbying is educating somebody on an issue. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, the environment, I don't have a personal gain. I'm not, you know, getting paid exorbitant amounts or like at the end of the day, 
you know, if we get more trails or we protect the climate, like that's, that's the benefit that I get as a lobbyist. And so I'm, I'm okay with that. And, um, I really liked, you know, working with people and I realized so much of it is about being personable and being able to connect with people. And, you know, I was 22, 23 working in the main state legislature with a bunch of, you know, quite frankly, old white men and well, loved, right. you know, and connecting so can, with them over. Can, yeah. Their can we get into and, that for a minute? Um, because yeah. you said, you know, this, this policy job opened up, you applied for it, you got it. But what did that really look like? Because, I mean, that must have been, first of all, super intimidating to, um, you said that you grew up with, you know, politics being in your family, but did you have any other experience besides that? Yeah, I was definitely really nervous. I think that it really just happened to be the right place in the right time. And I know it really frustrates young people when they're looking for jobs and that's what people tell them, but that really is kind of so often how things worked out. And I had worked for the Appalachian Mountain Club every summer in their backcountry huts. And then they also have a policy team as part of their nonprofit. It's a very large nonprofit in the Northeast. And so they were looking for somebody who was young, kind of entry level. And, you know, I was able to walk into that interview and, and tell them what their mission was and why I cared about it, because I had already been one of their seasonal employees. And so, you know, at that point, it's like you already have a leg up over other applicants because you can, you know, you can talk the language. Um, and I think it was exciting to them that I had a science background, too. I think there aren't a lot of people that can speak environmental policy and politics fluently and also talk about science and understand exactly what's going on. So I think that was advantageous. But I really do think it was like one of those classic examples of you worked as an intern for this organization and then you got hired full time. And I was super intimidated when I started going to the main state house um, and whenever I, you know, got up to testify on a bill, I feel like every committee member was looking at me like, who is this, you know, 12 year old that came to the Capitol today to testify um, because I look very young, but I, I kind of loved that and thrived off that and, you know, maybe use that to my advantage. I loved when you open your mouth and you start talking and you, you know, are clearly really educated. I love watching their facial expressions change and really, you know, tuning in and listening to me. And it's like, oh, this isn't, you know, a high school kid. This is someone that is really passionate about this issue and cares about it. Um, and I kind of thrive on, you know, changing people's opinions. Um, That's and then interesting. From that, I think I was more. That's interesting. Yeah. And I can, yeah. I can totally see that. Um, because for those of you who don't know what Lindsay looks like, she, you do <laughs> look very young for your age. You're beautiful. You're petite. You're blonde. So you're like, disarming like oh wow like who is this person that's what i love about you too um it's it's just super badass <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah, yeah and i love like i think i just kind of took advantage of that i mean everybody has differences and everybody has you know unique um traits and personalities and the way that we look and i think for me i kind of use that a little bit of you know, maybe, um, you know, I could approach people in a different way and seem more friendly. And maybe I was less intimidating because I was young. And, you know, on one hand, it's like, well, that's frustrating that people didn't take me seriously. But also it's, you know, maybe that's strategic edge. Maybe that gets you into some conversations sometimes that Hell yeah, you wouldn't otherwise is. have been invited to. So I kind of, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that position and kind of diving into policy. Amazing. How long were you in that job for? I was there for about three and a half years and kind of during that time had a pretty big aha moment that really kind of pushed my career in a certain direction, which, um, 
you know, most of my job was about uh, working on conservation and education issues um, around recreation in Maine and, um, you know, kind of working on land conservation issues and, you know, getting more trails and access. Um, and there was this one bill that came up that was about state park funding and basically, you know, wanting to get more funding for state parks, which, you know, fortunately isn't a very controversial issue because most people love state parks. And, um, for some reason there's just a hang up and it was really hard to, you know, get the bill through and, you know, not um, not everybody was giving at the time of day that it should have been given. And, um, I was just really frustrated. And so, I had done some work uh, with the business community in Maine and decided to ask L.L. Bean to get involved. Um, and they were pretty hesitant to stick their necks out politically. I think we see that with a lot of companies of, you know, being fearful of, of consumer backlash and what customers might say. But L.L. Bean, um, you know, agreed to make a phone call to some of the legislators on the committee. And, you know, they're one of the largest employers in Maine and obviously a brand that Maine really identifies with. And after those phone calls happened, the issue became moot and the bill passed and there was no, you know, further problem with it. And I think it was this big kind of moment for me of being like, Oh, I want to do that. Like I want to work with businesses. Like, you know, I spend so much time in the nonprofit community pushing for things and people say to us like, Oh, you're just another nonprofit. Um, or we had a situation in Maine that I was testifying at a hearing and I was told to let the citizens testify first and the, you know, environmentalists to testify afterwards. And it was kind of like, you know, saying like, you're not even a person, like you're just a, a talking nonprofit that doesn't, right. <laughs> um, you know, it's not as valued, um, which is a huge, you know, disappointment. And just seeing that economic power in a business, that was really exciting to me. Hmm. That's really amazing. Yeah. And so what gave you, yeah. uh, how did you contact LL Bean? You just, did you just, you had contacts there and you just got in touch and made the ask or how did that work out? Yeah. Yeah. So my job was kind of split into two parts in Maine, which I really liked because it kind of um, paired together well. And about 50% of it was working in the Maine legislature. And then 50% of it was working on getting um, people outside and active in Maine. So I had kind of this broad coalition that I had worked with um, called the Maine Outdoor Coalition. And, you know, was kind of sitting on that as, as the chair and organizing that group and kind of helping found it. And that included a lot of, you know, public and private groups and nonprofits and government agencies and just anyone with kind of a mission driven interest in getting people in Maine outside and active. And so LL Bean was a part of that coalition. And obviously, it was really helpful to have that coalition when I went back and worked on policy, because it was, you know, oftentimes the right people to come speak out on issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and so, and yeah, and, do, like in the meantime, while you're doing this, you're still active in the outdoors. Like how, how has that been for you? Like to balance this work that you do, which is big work with making the yeah. time to go out in nature and do these, you know, camping and skinning and doing these pretty amazing outdoor adventures. Yeah. For me, I feel like it's just so important to to connect to why you're doing what you're doing. And I think, you know, the reality is if we want to get blunt, you know, when you work for nonprofits, you work a lot of hours. You don't necessarily make the same wages that your peers make at companies, um, but you're there because of a passion and because of a commitment and because you truly believe in the mission of the group that you're working for. And I feel like those people or people that, you know, choose that lifestyle you have to give yourself the time to connect to why you're there. And I think if you lose that, you really 
you know, lose the drive and you, I, I don't think you'll do as good work because you're not um, kind of connecting with why you're there in the first place. And so for me, I've always been someone that's been pretty good at going off the grid on the weekends and disconnecting and getting out into the backcountry with friends. And, you know, it's really um, exciting to come back to work on Monday and be ready to go when you just had this experience that reminds you of, of what you just did. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. But kind of talk about what what are these some of these adventures that you're doing because I checked out your Instagram and you are pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. you've done some schemo um, stuff, like you ice climb. I mean, uh it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I like to joke that I'm kind of like a bucket list person that likes to do one of everything and I once I feel like I tick off every activity, maybe I'll choose what I like to do consistently. But, um, you know, I've done a lot of mountaineering. I've done ice climbing. I just picked up mountain biking, which I really love. I've run a marathon. Um, running's always been something that I really love. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, skiing is kind of my number one love and spending time in the backcountry. And, um, I don't really know when it started or how it started, but in the last couple of years, I started skiing monthly, which, um, is, is pretty nerdy and oftentimes not really, um, enjoyable skiing. You end up hiking 10 miles just to get a patch of snow, but that's kind of, I think kind of suits me to a T and describes a little bit of who I am, that that's exciting to me. Um, I also think when you grow up in the Northeast, you're always excited about snow and you don't care how many miles you have to hike. And I think my Western friends think I'm a little crazy, um, because it's so accessible out here, but, um, yeah, I've been doing that for a while and now I'm up to 29 months. And in the last, um, few months in February, I actually had a pretty bad accident and fell and broke my tib fib in the backcountry. Um, Yikes. so I've been hobbling around with a broken leg, but, but I didn't want to let that stop what I do. And, you know, maybe it ties back to what we were just talking about, where like, if you, if you can't get outside and to connect to, you know, why you're doing what you're doing during the week, it makes it feel a lot harder. And so, I've kind of pushed myself, even though I'm wearing a giant boot and walking around on crutches to still get outside. And I'm happy to report that I actually have skied the last two months. And by skied, I mean, put one ski on with one skin and shuffle along on crutches for a mile, which um, sounds ridiculous, but has been super rewarding. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's just like pure (laughs) dedication right there. Like, You are just, you know, you are highly, highly motivated individual. That is for sure. Because I saw that photo of you on with your one skin and your boot and your dog. Um, I think not too many. I don't know how many people in the world have actually done that, but probably not many people. Um, So it's very impressive. So how did you come to work with POW when there are a million other businesses, organizations out there that I'm sure you could have worked for? Yeah. So there's a little bit of a long story in here, but I'll do the the Cliff Notes version. You don't have to. You can give us the long um, one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Seeing the um, kind of power in business uh, and that voice politically with L.L. Bean led me to working with the Outdoor Industry Association in Colorado and getting to work on recreation and trade policy with them. Um, and so that kind of brought me from the Northeast out to Colorado. Um, and I did that for a few years and kind of got my feet wet working in D.C. and on policy and on behalf of businesses and really loved that um, position. But, you know, at some point, I think there becomes a time in your life where personally and professionally, it works to go back to school. And I had always known that that was something I was interested in. I think 
at the end of the day, if you haven't necessarily learned what you're working on academically, I think a lot of people really want to do that and want to take some time out and, you know, kind of dive a bit deeper. Um, and so I did that. So I moved back east and went to grad school. And when I finished, I didn't have a job. And I was pretty upset about that. I've, you know, as you just mentioned, I'm a pretty motivated person. And, you know, feeling like I got lucky and had these two incredible jobs out of college and then not being able to find a job when I just finished a master's degree was pretty rough. And I have a dear friend in Vermont who said to me, Lindsay, you're graduating. It's December. There's nothing in the world that you love more than skiing. And I think it's time for you to do your, your ski bum year. Mm. Um, and so I decided to take that seriously and um, moved out to Squaw Valley in Tahoe. And I have zero regrets about that. So I highly recommend that for people that haven't you know, done their, their ski bum winter, if you will, and coach for their team out there. And, uh, I worked with one of my co-coaches, um, who one day told me I should meet this guy, Jeremy Jones, who did some environmental work too. And I actually met him on the Shirley Lake chairlift with his family, which was a pretty, pretty fun experience and pretty unique. And from that learned more about POW. Um, and actually, you know, kind of going back in grad school, I had been really interested in, in protect our winters and had actually emailed, um, their executive director at that time and their board chair and let them know I was really interested mm. um, and didn't really, you know, hear anything back, um, which I think sometimes for people in the job seeking world is really frustrating. But, you know, after meeting Jeremy and um, kind of learning that POW is moving to Boulder from California, really long story short, ended up getting a call from their executive director and asking if I would like to interview. And I think for those of you out there that are looking for jobs, just remember that all of the networking and all of the outreach you do does pay off. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, somebody might save your email in a list of interesting people that they might like to hire someday and actually act on that. And so I feel truly honored and it was really humbling to have that experience to get, you know, a phone call and ask to, to apply and to check out this job. Um, and not surprisingly, because of my commitment to skiing and environmental work and, you know, snow sports ended up um, at POW shortly after. Well, and, and this is cool for me to hear because, so, so when was this? What year? That was in um, 2016. So I had kind of finished up working at, at Squaw Coaching and um, then, yeah, started talking to POW. That's really cool because, you know, from my perspective, you know, I started working with POW in 2009. And when you came on, that's when things started getting super legit in terms of <laughs> what we were doing uh, with policy. It's just interesting to see how, you know, the momentum and evolution of POW also coincided with, with your story. And, you know, as you said, timing is everything. What, what got you excited about working with POW? What separated POW from your perspective? I think, um, yeah, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, I really did like this niche of working with businesses. And it seemed like Pow really wanted to work more with businesses and grow that. I think it's something that Pow's always done and has done well, um, you know, within the outdoor industry. But I feel like it's something that they wanted to be, you know, a bigger portion. We don't have a lot of CEOs speaking out on climate change. Um, and we really want to increase that number. So I think that was one draw. And then the second draw was um, really working with athletes. And I think, you know, that was just a really exciting kind of new demographic to work with for me. And I like learning new things and I like 
um, kind of new challenges. And so I felt like that was a really interesting avenue to get across to policymakers. And, you know, I know we'll get into talking a little bit about BC, but I think one of my, you know, proudest moments at POW is when we bring athletes to DC and I work to, to prep them and to get them talking points and help them write testimony and, you know, seeing somebody present that in front of Congress and feel really empowered to tell their story. For me, that's like the most rewarding thing because it's, you know, it feels really good to know that you help that person get there um, and share that important story that really does make a difference. So definitely athletes and businesses. And then I think two more things. One was climate really is an apex issue. So Protect Our Winters works on climate change. And that was new for me. I'd worked on recreation and worked on conservation, but not climate change specifically. And I think at the end of the day, we can protect as much land as we want. We can, you know, we can protect national monuments and make sure there's access. But at the end of the day, if, if climate change really wreaks havoc on these landscapes, what are they actually going to look like? And why are we actually protecting them without protecting the climate first? And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, it to me, it's really hitting a, a bigger point and something that really needs to be addressed. So for me, it felt like a more crucial, important issue. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this too, but Protect Our Winters is really small. When I started, I was the third employee in 2016, and that was really new for me. So being with kind of a young entrepreneurial organization where, you know, the, the first nonprofit I worked for was founded in 1876 and has 500 staff. Um, and so it was a really different environment than what I was used to. And again, that was another challenge of, you know, having limited resources, but really learning how to, I don't know, be savvy mm-hmm. <laughs> in that regard. Amazing. I love that. So what is your actual role at POW? And what does that look like for you on a day to day? Yeah. So I think I kind of think of my job in three parts. So I I run all of our advocacy and policy work. Um, And so the first part of that is really figuring out what climate change policy issues Protect Our Winters is going to work on. And the reality is there are probably hundreds of climate policy issues that any organization could work on. And as I just mentioned, as a staff of, you know, three at that time, um, you know, we're not going to be able to work on everything and we have to be realistic about our capacity. So one of the first things I did after starting at POW was really interview people, um, our members, our athletes, our board members, our community, our brands, um, and say, you know, what resonates with you in terms of climate policy? What specifically are you interested in? And then matching that with kind of expertise in those arenas of, you know, what is some of the best solutions for climate change? What are those solutions? Um, and so we wrote a policy agenda of these are the specific issues that we care about. Um, so whether that's solar energy or, you know, efficiency when it comes to vehicles or putting a price on carbon, those are some of the things that we identified that we really cared about. So kind and of the, get the into that. Is, what what oh, yeah. are they specifically? So solar, a price on carbon, transportation issues are are those mm-hmm. are those the main three or is there one more yeah and then yeah we've also worked a bit on public lands too and basically you know kind of tying back to what i was just saying about climate being the apex issue um you know we want to make sure that people were talking about climate change when they were talking about public lands especially seeing the outdoor industry rally around things like bears ears um the real threat to bears ears is that you know we want to frack it and drill it and mine it. And those all have, you know, very serious climate implications. So we wanted to make sure that that story is getting told in the sense of public lands uh, work as well. So um, public lands um, and kind of thinking about fossil fuel extraction, putting a price on carbon, 
making sure our vehicles are as fuel efficient and electric and low emission as possible, and then um, working on clean energy and increasing solar. And that's that's really cool for me to hear, and I think for everybody else who's listening to hear, because it's true, climate change is so enormous, and it can feel so overwhelming because there's so much to be done. And it's really nice to see POW has like a very clear strategy around how POW is going to address climate change. Yeah, I think that's exciting for me too. I think the reality is like our new executive director, Mario, always teases me because it's it's still a really big agenda. It is. Um, but I think, you know, we're going to hone in um, and, and we have on what specific issue under each of those buckets, if you will, that we'll work on. So there's definitely room to kind of specialize in that too. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, yeah. So then I think the next piece of, of my job is really tracking what's actually happening. So reading the news every day and, and learning what's happening in D.C., what's happening in state houses, power works on both. Um, federal and state policy. And we've even engaged um, at the local level a little bit as well. So really tracking, you know, reading different news sources and um, checking in on different um, state legislatures pages and seeing what bills are coming up and what's going on and identifying, okay, what are the, the issues that are happening pertaining to our agenda? So that's kind of the next step. And then the third step is figuring out, okay, if these, you know, issues exist, so let's say, um, I'll go back to my home state of Maine to keep it simple. So they had a, a bill last year where they were trying to make solar really expensive for people that wanted to put it on their roof. So it's like, okay, this is an issue in a state where POW has a community and has passionate outdoor enthusiasts. It's um, an issue that pertains to our agenda because it's, you know, limiting our capacity to increase solar. Um, so then what are we going to do about it? And so then the third step becomes how do we advocate for change on that? So how do we, you know, how does POW set up campaigns to have their members call their legislatures, legislators? How does POW connect with our athletes in that state um, and our businesses and ask them to speak out? So how do we do an op-ed with Seth Westcott um, in the Portland Press-Herald and, you know, urge him to speak out and kind of tell his perspective on climate? So kind of putting together the campaign. So it's researching the issues, tracking them, and then figuring out those avenues for advocacy. So, yeah, you're a busy woman. Yeah, there's a lot to do. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And since you mentioned there were only three people working at POW when you came on in 2016, how many people actually work at POW right now? Just so people know how big the team really is. Yeah. So I started in 2016. POW had three employees. We now have six and we have two job offers out there um, now. And so in a few weeks, we should be eight. Um, and even after that, have two more job descriptions that are live right now. So if you're interested in working with POW, you should check out our website. And so hopefully by this summer, we'll be a team of 10, which is really exciting. Obviously, policy, it's it's a big part of POW. And it, it's an interesting thing because um, I guess when I first started working with POW, I was working with POW because I cared about climate change. And it was the one place where the whole snow sports community was coming together to be a voice for winter. And now obviously POW is expanding and becoming bigger beyond just snow sports, but, you know, spilling out into just outdoor sports in general. But really, since I started working with POW, policy has become just every year more and more important and more and more 
uh, where we're putting our energy. Can you talk about why policy is so important in terms of climate change? Sure. I think it's really a means to change. I think it's the way that we change, um, you know, the, the laws in our country and what's happening and how we act and what's available to us. I think, you know, there's definitely a lot to be said for, for changing your ways and changing the way we all live our lives and living them in a more sustainable way. Um, and I don't discredit that at all. But I think what POW focuses on is saying that's really important. But like you're saying, there's enough people that are apathetic that, you know, the people who are making a change, that that change isn't going to be big enough to solve climate. Um, it's certainly something we all need to be moving towards, but we need kind of large scale policy changes to help us get further. And I think a good example in, in thinking about that is like when you think about what car you drive, you know, a lot of us that are passionate outdoor enthusiasts are going to drive cars to a trailhead. That's the reality of, of the situation. And we have carbon footprints, but, you know, we can pass policies and we can implement policies that make the choices when we go to actually purchase a vehicle different. So, you know, it could be mandated that there are, you know, we have to buy uh, the only cars available to us are get 50 miles per gallon or better. That could be, you know, a government policy on fuel efficiency standards or, you know, we could have a lot more electric vehicle charging infrastructure every 30 miles on every highway um, to make that, you know, easier to use an electric vehicle. So those are changes that can be made kind of at the federal, state or local level that basically help us with the choices we make. So when we turn on our light switch, it's, you know, coming from clean energy and not from coal. Or when we go to buy a car, you know, it's as fuel efficient as possible. And, and it's really policy behind those things that's making those changes. Um, so I think it's a really, you know, it's, it's a way that we can actually change and address climate. What would you say to people who have not been engaged? What I'm trying to say is I wasn't really engaged before I started working with POW, but POW has really given me um, the tools and the support system and the education to feel more confident in being involved. And I feel like the more you get involved and the more you educate yourself, the more passionate you become. So POW, I think, is an amazing organization for helping people get it, get more engaged and helping them find a platform and a voice. It seems like this was maybe never an issue for you. You've always, you've come from a political family and right off the, from the get-go, you were involved in a job that was all around policy. But where do you think this disengagement is coming from? I feel like it's really hard to feel like you're not heard by the people that you elect and the people that represent you. I think, you know, a lot of people think I'm, you know, one in a million or one in a thousand, depending on whether you're talking about local or, or state or federal government. And, you know, why is what I say actually going to make a difference? I think that's, you know, very common in our country to feel that way. And I think, you know, I would encourage people to challenge themselves and really think about, okay, I'm just going to try it once and see how it feels. And I think at POW, what we've realized is when we do give people the tools and resources and make things really easy for them. And what I mean by that is I think there are a lot of nonprofits out there that do incredible work, but they say, call your senator and um, seek out on this issue. And, you know, for somebody that's not, doesn't know exactly what's going on, it's really hard to be like, okay, but who is my senator and what right. is their number? And right. when I call them, what should I say? 
that can be, yeah, really scary. And so what we try to do at POW is really break down those barriers and, and make it very, very easy for people. And I think when people do take that first step and, and try it, it, it feels really good. And I feel like you do get validated. And, um, you know, POW is in Washington, D.C. Uh, just last week with um, Olympians actually on Capitol Hill and meeting with their senators and their representatives. And we did not leave a single office without that person, that representative saying, thank you so much for showing up. Like it matters that you show up. And I need to hear from my constituents and from people um, that are seeing these issues out in the field, because my job is to represent you. And I think it's really hard in our, our political world today, or really easy, I should say, to get jaded and to get frustrated with the system. But um, I think the reality is that we we have to keep showing up um, and we have to to try. And I think it is rewarding and it feels it feels good to be kind of civically minded and engaged. And that doesn't have to be, you know, at, at a level of being super wonky. It can just be a commitment to contacting your legislators once a month. You know, it can be what works for you. Well, and let's talk about that, because that seems to be one small thing. And it's maybe it's not so small, but that's one thing every single person who cares about the environment and climate change can actually do, right, is call their mm -hmm. representatives. And I remember um, about a year ago, we threw the POW Action Summit in Aspen. And that mm -hmm. was a, that was a really cool event where we kind of brought together all of these local environmental organizations that came together, which maybe normally they don't do that. And also any other activated citizens in the Roaring Fork Valley who, who were wanting to do more. And we had mm -hmm. this think tank experience. And I'll never forget that on the panel discussion where you spoke, you kind of rattled off a really shocking statistic around the the actual power of calling your representatives. And it mm -hmm. really like was a huge moment for me that showed, oh my gosh, one simple, really powerful thing we can all do is call our senators or whoever. Um, so can you, can you talk about that a little bit? These stats that I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the first thing that's important to remember before diving into stats is I think a lot of people think that, um, someone might debate them back or someone might ask them questions or, or, you know, even engage in a little healthy disagreement when they call. And that's absolutely not the case. When, when you call your legislator, it's almost like leaving a message, you know, somebody like an intern is going to answer the phone and you can say, Hey, you know, I really care about climate change and I'm really concerned about what that's doing to my community as we see, you know, snowpack loss and um, it's really hurting the economy. Um, and then you can just end there. Like you don't have to, you know, they're not going to say, okay, but what, you know, what percentage or what about this? And so I think it's really important to remember that it's really just sharing your opinion and, and that's it. Um, but Good point. Uh, it's true that, that, yeah, typically um, conservative people actually call their legislators more. And I think, you know, we're in a place where it's really unfortunate that climate change has become such a partisan issue because it does not care whether you're a Republican or Democrat. Um, but we are in a place where it has become kind of deeply politicized and traditionally conservatives aren't speaking out on it as much. And so 
Um, but conservatives are are people that call their legislators much more than more liberal people. And, you know, when we look at something like gun control, this is kind of what I was speaking to on that panel. Um, conservatives call their their legislators six times more than um, a liberal person on the same issue. And so at the end of the day, it's it's kind of a tallying game, which sounds a little superficial, but, you know, an, an intern or somebody working in a congressional office is going to, you know, say, OK, like, you know, these three people called about climate change um, and they all had, you know, said we should take action on it. And these 60 people called and said that we shouldn't. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to pass that message on to their boss. And that's that's what that person is going to hear is this is what came out of my constituency today. And they are supposed to represent their constituency. So if that's what they hear, then that's probably what they're going to use to vote on. So I think it's really important to remember that kind of regardless of what your issue is, that you that you make that heard. And, you know, we've challenged people at POW to like, just try calling every day for two weeks. And it's, you know, it's funny because they're like, oh, the staffer is so annoyed with me because I keep calling. But it is kind of a clean slate, new tally every day um, of, of what issues are important to people. And so calling um, as often as you can is important. Yeah, I, I think that's such an awesome message for everyone to hear um, because it, it it is so simple just in terms of how POW makes it accessible to us. We can literally go on protectourwinters.org and you will find all of the information you need to call the right people and even have a script. And that's important in the beginning when you're doing this for the first time, because it is scary and you kind of get, you get freaked out like, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I shouldn't call. But if you have a script, you can literally read the script. And then the more you get comfortable calling and reading the script, the more you can start to actually have a conversation and talk about things you know, from your own experience. Um, but it's a progression, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I just was able to do one of the POW Hot Planet Cool Athletes assemblies, which for those of you who don't know, is another really cool offering where POW works with schools to bring in members of POW's Writers Alliance. So pro athletes to give a presentation to the kids around climate change, what the athlete has seen uh, what they're doing to act and why they care and how we can all get involved and work together to help. Part of the presentation talked about just the percentages of people who agree climate change is happening versus the people who don't agree or the people who are discouraged by it. And I was really shocked to see that really only 11% of us are deniers, but the deniers mm-hmm. are actually also the loudest group. So that seems to be a big mission of POWs, right? Is we're going to mobilize the entire outdoor sports community and we're going to use our power, which we have huge economic influence and power. But right now we're just not, we're not loud. We need to get louder. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And I think it's easy to get discouraged. You know, like a lot of people talk, I mean, even at, at POW, when we post something on social media, we definitely see some trolls, you know, debating science or debating the reality of climate change and, the, you know, how strong impacts are and what they're tied to. And I think it's really easy to get frustrated. But I think it's going back to those stats like you're talking about and remembering that 70 percent of Americans know that climate change is real. Um, 
and many of them, you know, are, are alarmed and concerned about it. There's this really great study that is where a lot of those numbers come from by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, and they survey the public every few years and ask them about, you know, kind of where they're at on climate change. And, and you're right, it's a very small percentage that is actually deniers, but that those people are very loud. And I think we just have to kind of remember that that's a very small number and to kind of move forward and know. And I think, you know, a great example is last week we were in D.C. with Olympians and we were there. Um, Jesse Diggins was there, the um, Nordic skier. And, you know, she told us she hadn't necessarily engaged in climate and she didn't know how that would, you know, go over on her social following. And she was a little worried about it. And she said she was really excited to see just so many people when she did her first post about coming to D.C. with POW, you know, writing thank you and thank you for speaking up and thank you for being a voice, um, you know, and that outnumbered any trolls um, comments like literally 100 to 1. Um, and so I think it can be scary to put yourself out there, but kind of rest assured in, in those numbers. And that's a good point, though, because um, how do you as Lindsay, but also you as POW, do you engage with those trolls? Or do you not engage? Um, what, what's a strategy for somebody who's maybe wanting to speak out a little bit more, use their social platform, but they're afraid, and maybe they do get some backlash a little bit? What is your recommendation for how to, how to handle those situations? Sure. Yeah, I think if it's um, related to science, I think we, like, I just, I just think it's not helpful for us to debate the science. The science is clear. You know, we can go back to that 97% of um, scientists agree this is this is real and human caused. Um, and I really like there was an interview at one point with Bill Nye um, and he was being interviewed as a, a scientist that supports climate change. And then there was another person on the, the show that was somebody that doesn't think climate change is real and different scientists. And he said to the commentator, you know, you should have 97 scientists talking here and then only three that are talking about how it doesn't exist like this is not proportional and so sometimes we see in the media and maybe that's why we think sometimes that there are more trolls than they are there are um but anyway going back to the science i just don't think it, it helps us at all to debate it it's it's clear it's a consensus let's move on and we discredit ourselves when we just try to keep going back and forth it's you know that's exactly what those people want us to do is kind of a tit for tat and so an example I'll give is I did um, testify at the Denver State House on a bill last year, um, and there was a climate denier, uh, a senator sitting on the, the committee, and he started debating the science with me and telling me how um, carbon dioxide is really good for plants and it's going to be good for us to have more CO2. Oh, wow. um, and I just stopped, you know, engaging, and I just said, "Does winter look different than when you were a kid?" Um, and he started talking all about how many snow days he had. And, you know, he grew up um, in the San Juans in Colorado and, and, it, you know, it's like, okay, case in point, like, I don't even have to say anything. And I feel confident, like I won this argument, you know? Mm, <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of end of conversation. There's a really good website out there called Skeptical Science. Um, and it actually, it's funny, it, it, it um, doesn't necessarily look like a very official page, but it is. Um, and they actually debunk kind of all of trolls arguments. And it's really great to go on there. And if you're feeling like you need a response, you know, that's a good place to look. And so I think power strategy is don't debate the science. But if we feel like somebody's really spreading strong, you know, disinformation or trolling us um, with just, you know, information that's not true, I think it is important to say, like, you know, actually, you know, I disagree with that. And here's why. I think the key is, 
one response and then letting it go. I think, you know, just again, by engaging an argument that doesn't help us, but I think it's okay to say for clarification, you know, this is where we're coming from. This is the study. This is, you know, what, what we believe and then end of story. Yeah. That's a really, really good approach. Um, since we're and on actually, this- I should, um, uh-huh. oh, I was just going to say, I would correct myself. I just said what we believe. And that's actually one of my biggest pet peeves in climate is it's, it's not a belief, right? And right. so it's not, not whether you believe or not it, it is. So, um, I, you know, this is, this is fact, I this guess. Is this is what we should This say. is the scientific fact. Yes. Yeah. Well, since we're on this subject, an- another thing that I've experienced in this climate change world is, it's interesting, actually. I, I got to go to speak on behalf of POW at a couple different surrounding events at the Paris climate negotiations, the COP21. Um, and these events were all around the intersection of climate and sports. And at one of the events, which was called the Sustainable Innovation in Sport Forum, which brings together leaders within the global sports scene Sports leagues, federations, uh, sports venues, broadcasters, governments, UN, private entities, uh, and NGOs to discuss how the sports industry can inspire and encourage action on climate change. And we had a, an all day symposium and I spoke with, with a few different people at the very end. And at the end, there was a man who stood up who He was from some environmental organization. I can't remember which one. It doesn't even matter. But he stood up and he just said, I'm so disappointed in this entire event. I've been here all day and nobody is really doing anything to make any actual impact. And he was clearly really frustrated. He was stressed out. He was overwhelmed. But it it just made me feel really sad. Like that here is someone who clearly has been working maybe his entire life in this field. And he's getting just as stressed and jaded because he really believed that his way was the way we should all be taking action. Because he brought up, you know, Mm -hmm. this is where it's all about the millennials. I think he brought up something about the millennials. And, and that's something that's, I feel can also become part of the issue. So it's not just deniers. It's not just trolls, but it's people who believe that their one way is the only way and dismissing other people's efforts at the same time. What I learned, like the biggest thing that I learned in Paris is there's no silver bullet solution. They talk about we need a silver buckshot, but this idea that, man, we need activation on every level in every sector. And there's no one way is the best way. How, how can we become more of a united community and not fall prey to this frustration and negativity and this sort of us versus them mentality that can actually continue to be part of the problem? Yeah, definitely. I think that's, you know, a sad story, but I think we do see it kind of in the environmental world. I think first it's, you know, climate change is a really hard issue to work on. And I think a lot of people say to us, like, how do you get up every day and like, you know, go to work and be excited to work on something that's, that's really daunting and is really scary. And I think in that sense, a lot of people are fearful that, you know, time is kind of running out. Like we don't have a lot of time to correct, um, you know, how much fossil fuels we're pumping into our atmosphere. Um, and we've already baked in a considerable amount of change. And so I think that's scary. And so I think, you know, 
honoring and, and accepting people's, you know, fear in this, I think is part of it. Um, but, you know, not kind of pushing that fear to a place where we're, you know, lashing out on other people and saying their strategies and tactics might not be the best. I think there is a sense of like, we do need to kind of come together as a, a community of people that care about this and, and work side by side and not discredit what each other are doing um, and kind of, you know, work in coalition with each other. But I absolutely agree with you. It is kind of a silver buckshot thing. So I think, you know, if Pal's working on on solar and there's another group that's working on wind. Um, I mean, the more the merrier, I think that's a better, you know, situation. We're not going to argue with them and say, well, actually this is the better way. And I think I would just tie this kind of back to POW. I think, you know, I think POW gets flack from people a lot because it's, you know, like we're representing the snow sports industry and the broader outdoor community. And, and we are people that have carbon footprints. And, you know, so a lot of people say, Hey, you shouldn't be speaking out on climate. You shouldn't be doing this, you know, kind of like that, that man in the room saying like nothing is actually happening. And the reality is if, if we all didn't do anything, like that would be the worst thing that we could do. You know, we have to all kind of speak up and, and just because you have a carbon footprint in a world where it's really hard not to have a carbon footprint, it's almost impossible if you're you know living in the U S that shouldn't preclude you from speaking out on climate. Um, and that kind of ties back to what we were talking about at the beginning with policy. It's, you know, we can advocate for changes that can make us live our lives more efficiently. Um, and so, you know, we do need to speak out and say, hey, you know, I want to pay for um, my carbon footprint by putting a price on carbon. And I want to purchase a vehicle that's, you know, zero emissions. And these are the choices that we want to make. And so I think it's remembering that nothing precludes you from speaking out on issues. And, you know, we shouldn't kind of see these barriers, maybe the way that that gentleman did that day. Mm-hmm. A big part of what you're doing and what you talked about earlier is your work on Capitol Hill with all of the POW athletes and CEOs and resorts and brands. This is this is a huge component, I think, of POW's mission. Will you kind of break down this process so people know um, why we're going to Capitol Hill and, and what that looks like? And, and can other people do this? Is this something that people who who don't have the support system of power, are they able to go and and lobby as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Protect Our Winters has been going to D.C. for for many years, as you know, um, and kind of doing an annual lobby trip in which we meet with lawmakers. And I think, you know, at the beginning, it really became about education of, of who we are and what our issues are and what we care about. And so really bringing that story to our federal lawmakers, to both the House of Representatives and to the Senate and meeting with folks. And I know in the past, we've met with agencies as well to talk about kind of the changes that we're seeing, whether it's a, a CEO or a ski resort or an athlete talking about the, the changes in the climate that they're witnessing in the field and what they're concerned about. And then I think backing that with economic data, especially right now, it's you know pretty common that conservatives are really swayed by economics um, and really interested in that. And so I think being able to say, you know, when we don't have snow, this is what it costs us. It costs, you know, the, the ski resort industry a billion in a low snowfall year. We lose that much money. We lose jobs. Um, that really resonates with, with people in DC. And so we go into their offices and we, we talk to them. We set up meetings. Um, and this is definitely something that, that anyone can do. Those buildings are all open to the public and they're all, um, you know, if you're a constituent of a congressman or of a senator, you're more than welcome to schedule a meeting. I think, 
the senators and congressmen, their time is often limited. Um, and so sometimes you might end up meeting with just a staff member um, and not necessarily the member of Congress. But I think that's equally as important because those staff members are writing briefs and they're writing reports and they're passing them up um, to their bosses to review. And so that that information is being heard. And I think um, I think when I started at POW, I was really excited about state policy because I think, you know, at a time when we have a federal administration that's not really friendly at all to climate change, it's hard to keep showing up in D.C. and knocking on doors and talking about climate change when it feels like there's no progress being made there. And we see states like Washington and Oregon and Vermont and New York really pushing, um, you know, aggressive climate policy through, which is really exciting. And it seems like things are happening more on the local level. But I think that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep showing up. And kind of what I was talking about when I worked in Maine is so much of politics is about relationships and building relationships. And so if we continue to go to D.C. year after year and knock on the same doors and talk to some of the same folks, I think that only builds uh, our ability to get our message heard and our policy asks made. Well, and that's something that I've, you know, witnessed firsthand is the power of showing up every single year once or maybe twice a year and holding these people, these representatives accountable and saying, we care, Mm -hmm. we're paying attention. We want you to vote this way and specifically ask them when there are issues that we can get specific on. And then, you know, we come back the next year and we can say, thank you for voting for the environment. Or we can say, we're really disappointed that you didn't and let them know that we know that they didn't. And that's Mm -hmm. been a really, I think, as tough as those trips are, because they are tough. Like you go to Capitol Hill and it just feels Mm -hmm. like this huge barge that doesn't move. But what I've found over the years since I've been going is, wow, showing up every year is actually, it really is making a difference. And not only do all of these people know who we are now and who POW is, but they know that we're going to use our social media to con- to mm-hmm. thank them or to let them know that we're unhappy with the decision or a vote that they made. And it's it's been, that's been a real eye opener for me. What would you say to somebody who, because it's intimidating, right? Like we are, we always yeah. say we're like fish out of water. We go to DC and we put on like suits and ties and dresses and <laughs> blazers. And it's like, we're mountain people. What do you say to people who are nervous about doing something like that? And I mean, you yourself, you had to put yourself in these situations. So what, what's given you the courage to stand up in an environment where you maybe are the fish out of water? I think it really just comes back to speaking your truth and speaking what's real for you. You know, we've been talking a little bit about how we brought Olympians to the Hill a few weeks ago. And, you know, we didn't do a ton of prep with those athletes. We weren't like, okay, here's, you know, the 56 talking points that you need to hit and this economic stat and this number. It's really, you know, I want you to connect with this person, this lawmaker, and tell them what you're seeing. And and we're not going to ask you to share anything that, that you don't know and that you can't speak from the heart. And I would say the same thing goes, you know, for me and my role. And certainly I have more of a expectation to know a lot of those stats and to be able to fill in and tell that story and speak on behalf of our CEOs and athletes. But at the end of the day, it's really about sharing our stories um, and what we've seen. And, you know, I feel like that's, you know, not surprisingly the best way to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And I've seen from like, you know, the first year we started going, 
where we did just talk about the heartfelt stories and we would wow them with our medals, our Olympic medals, and tell them about how we love snowboarding or skiing or the, you know, the mountains so much. But the, the, I think the real value is coming with that as well as this mm-hmm. economic impact. And can you talk mm-hmm, a little bit about sure. the economic impact of the snow sports community, the outdoor sports community, jobs? I mean, you alluded to a, a low snow year. We lose a billion, a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah, absolutely. The broader, I think the really big take home here is, is people spend a ton of money on outdoor recreation. It's something that they care about. So whether that's, you know, putting gas in your car to go to a national park or, you know, actually paying for the entry fee to the national park or the gear that you want your hiking boots to go there. Um, there's a considerable amount, you know, whether you hire a guide, the park ranger, all of those people are affiliated with the outdoor industry. And that's just one kind of tiny one day example. And so the Outdoor Industry Association has done some really great research on the size of the outdoor recreation economy. And their most recent report counts that to be an $887 billion economy, which is huge. And when we go to D.C., I think it's really easy to say, okay, but there's all these fossil fuel lobbyists that are controlling what's happening in terms of climate. And, you know, we can't speak out because they're, you know, money, money, money. And that's what they can talk about and talk about business loss and you know that's it's really hard to go up against them but the reality is we have you know a competitive edge as well and i think you know a great example from that report is that the snow sports industry so not even the the broader outdoor industry employs 695,000 people every year and that's actually more than the extractive industries in the US so you know, working at a ski resort or, um, you know, within the snow sports or at a shop that actually employs more people than, you know, in oil and coal and gas, which is crazy to think about. And so I think it's remembering that when we go to D.C. that we do have that economic weight. And um, I think the eight hundred and eighty seven billion dollars that is um, if you take the, the pharmaceutical industry and add that to the motor vehicle industry, that's about equal with the outdoor industry. So that's pretty crazy when we think about it in that scale. It it's is huge. because it's, we um, we haven't been thinking of ourselves as more powerful than the oil and gas industry, and yet we are. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's that's a mindset that really needs to change. And I've seen, I think we've seen that start to change really this year in terms of kind of the awakening of the outdoor industry around public lands and around bears ears and really sticking out, you know, against um, elected officials on that and their stances on that and, and deciding we're going to move our trade show to a different state because we don't agree with that state's policies on, on public lands and taking kind of this huge economic booming trade show and, and removing it from a place where we disagree with policies, um, which obviously hurts them economically. So I think, I think we're only going to see more of that. And I think we're kind of coming into our own as, as the outdoor industry. But Protect Our Winters has also done research specifically on the snow sports industry, which is that, you know, in low snowfall years, we lose a billion in revenue that we could otherwise generate. And yes, it's true that we're seeing more volatile winters. And so like if we look at Tahoe for four years, we saw extreme drought and we saw ski resorts closing Martin Luther King Day weekend. And then we saw, you know, a, a pretty good winter and then one of the most epic winters. Yet we are going to see increases with climate change of, of volatility and seasons. But I think the point is that in high snowfall years, we're not making enough money back to, to basically compensate for those low snowfall years. So it is still a giant um, economic hit overall. It's not being recouped. Mm. What are some current issues that we should be aware of right now? What are some ways where we can get more involved? 
Um, any specific campaigns that POW is working on right now? Yeah, we've been working on a few at the federal level. Um, a lot of the legislative sessions in the states have just wrapped up. May is the time of year when a lot of those end. And so we aren't necessarily working on state policy right now, but we are working on um, some of the federal policies. And basically, you know, the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, you know, just recently rolled back fuel efficiency standards, um, basically saying our vehicles should be less fuel efficient, which, as you know, is not the direction that POW wants to go. Um, so there is a public comment period open for that that we're working on. Um, and all of this can be found at, at protectourwinters.org. We also are calling for, for Pruitt's resignation. We feel like, you know, from canning the clean power plan, um, which our public comment period on that just ended to rolling back our fuel efficiency. You know, this person is not carrying out the mission of the EPA, which is really about protecting um, human health and the environment. And that's not happening. And so, you know, kind of alongside many other environmental organizations, we we're asking people to contact their, you know, senators and congressmen and say, hey, it's time to, to get rid of this guy. It's time for him to resign. Um, and so those are a few of the campaigns that we're working on at the federal level. On the local level, this gets a little more wonky, so I'll try to keep it um, simple. But there are um, giant energy providers in the West. So here in Colorado, Excel Energy or across the broader West um, Pacific Corps who are making proposals saying to the states that they provide power to that we want to increase how much of that power comes from renewables. So Pacific Corp wants to build significant um, wind power facilities and provide more renewables and less fossil fuel power. Um, and POW has been intervening in those processes and saying, you know, again, it gets pretty wonky when you're talking to the Public Utilities Commission, but saying, hey, you know, we really believe in this and we want to see it go this way. And as consumers of electricity, we want it to go that way um, in terms of more renewables. And also, um, if you don't go that way, that impacts our business bottom line as outdoor brands and, and ski resorts. Um, so that's been kind of a, a fun project that we've been taking on. And I think the exciting part about that is the reason that these big companies are, are doing this is they see where the market is going and they see that renewables are growing in popularity and not surprisingly because their businesses, they want to own that. And certainly, you know, down the road, there may be some complications with that. But at the end of the day, they're, they're seeing the market trending towards more renewables and they want to go that way. So, and so we can find out about all of this on the website, protectourwinters.org. Mm -hmm. And I think a really great place to start is um, if you go there, there's a button that says take action on the top and that links you to our climate activist roadmap. And that kind of walks you, you know, really handholds you through seven steps to take action on climate. Um, and I think that's a, a really great place for people to start. The other thing that I'll mention is, you know, at the end of the day, we can't pass um, aggressive climate policy if we don't have people um, voting on these issues that think climate change is real. And I think, you know, in the past two years or year and a half, it's been really easy to see this as we've seen a lot of our environmental policies get, you know, tossed out the window. And I think it's easy to say, again, like my voice doesn't matter, but your vote absolutely matters. And, you know, we talked a lot about this at POW, but in, in midterm elections, millennials don't show up to vote, but they can vote with more numbers if they want than the baby boomer generation because we're, we're equal in size. And so if we could really turn out the millennial generation in, in the 2018 midterms and, and everybody for that matter, um, that's going to be a really important initiative for PAL this year is really focusing on that. And yeah, I think it's this reality of we're working on all these policies, but we're not seeing the progress that we want because we still have a lot of climate deniers in office. And it's really 
time for that to end. Um, and so we're also registering people to vote and encouraging people to check to vote. We're going to be launching a climate voter guide this year to help you know who to vote for. Um, and all of that will be at protectourwinters.org um, and at our sister nonprofit, Protect Our Winters Action Fund, which is the nonprofit that will do our political work. So that website will be live um, soon. Awesome. And I think um, actually at this last, the presentation we did last weekend, two weekends ago, there was a code that people could actually text to um, get mm -hmm. updated with their voter registration and then to be sent more information around the, the their elected officials who are who are up for either being voted in or voted out. Do you remember what that is? The POW, so you text POW 2018, so the letters POW, and then 2018 to 52886. Yeah, and that that's a great point. That connects you right into our system and can help you check. Like a lot of people just want to know, like, am, am I sure that I'm registered to vote? I think I am, but I'm not sure. And you can really easily check um, through go, following the steps and, um, uh, yeah, getting to that website. Amazing. Okay, last few questions. Through, through all of the work that you have done and that you're doing and your work with POW, um, what are you seeing that makes you the most optimistic right now about our environmental issues and climate change? I think this kind of goes back to, to this Excel and, and Pacific Corps, this energy case, which is a little bit wonky. But here in Colorado, Excel Energy wants to make 55% of their power renewable. And so they made a proposal to the Public Utilities Commission here in Colorado and said, hey, we want to do this. And the Public Utilities Commission said, okay, but you have to do some research as to what the cost will look like because we don't want to drastically increase electricity rates for people buying it. So we don't want those rate payer rates to be really expensive. Um, so Excel, you know, put out a bid and said, okay, we want to, you know, build more renewable, you know, to developers and how can you help us do that? And basically what came back is that to build new um, renewable power plants, so power plants um, powered by wind and solar with the capacity to store energy. So that's been something that's been really controversial is like, okay, you can build all this renewable energy infrastructure, but you have to be able to store that energy because as we know, there are times um, that it isn't windy or it isn't sunny and we still need power. Um, so to build a new power plant that's powered on solar or wind plus store that energy is actually cheaper than running an existing cold-fired power plant um, mm. here in Colorado. And that is like huge news. Huge. Um, and, you know, yeah, it sounds kind of silly because it is really wonky, but that's basically saying, you know, it's cheaper to do a new facility with storage than it is to run an old facility that already exists with coal. Um, and so I think as we see like the market go in this direction, um, it's going to be a lot easier because it's not going to be about talking about climate um, and trying to, you know, talk to people about the science and, and debating the impacts, it's going to be talking about, you know, the economy and the way the market is going. And that makes that conversation a lot easier. Um, and so to me, that's one of the most exciting things. So on the flip side, what concerns you the most? Um, I think there are a lot of concerns, but I think, you know, I think the biggest one is that in 2016, we elected a president that doesn't think climate change is real. Um, and to me, that's really sad because I feel like when we go to D.C. and we meet with Republicans, Gretchen, you were on a trip that we did last September. And when we showed up in D.C., the hurricanes had just hit. 
It was raining um, ash in Portland and Seattle from wildfires. Montana um, was on fire. California was shortly to burn after that. And it wasn't really hard to talk about climate change. It wasn't, you know, this thing that was really combative or divisive. It's kind of like, you know, if you look around you and observe the world outside you, it's happening. And so to have somebody at that level of government um, that doesn't think it's real is, is hugely detrimental. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of our policies and a lot of the progress that was made in the last, you know, years. And it's not just the progress that the Obama administration made. It's it's before that, too. Um, like we've had Republicans that have been really strong leaders on environmental issues. Um, and so I think that's really disappointing. But that's also, you know, to turn it to a positive thing. That's why we have to show up in 2018 on midterm elections and and change the people in power and why we need to show up in 2020. And we can't take that for granted because again kind of going back to climate as the apex issue it's you know as we know it's not just about powder days it's about human health and welfare and it's about water and agriculture and um you know will we be able to to feed ourselves and to have water to sustain us it's it's a really big issue the biggest issue um such a good call to action around voting maybe one of the most important things every single one of us can do um, midterm elections. Moving into the final two questions, what's your definition of success? To me, I think it's continuing to show up um, to, to our elected officials um, in whatever that looks like, whether that's, you know, talking to, to local people in your town or whether that's, you know, going to D.C. for an annual fly-in. It's continuing to show up and continuing to speak the truth that we all see. And you know, the, the concerns that we have and um, seeing progress. I think, um, you know, like I said before, I've, I kind of grew up in the state policy world and I really loved that. I thought that, um, you know, I watched every bill I worked on get voted up or down and, you know, just saw things move. And I think in D.C. we don't see things move as quickly. But in this last trip that we went there, I felt like every person really said, I'm, you know, I'm so glad you showed up and I'm so glad you were here to tell your story. And, um, you know, we had two meetings with, with people that a few years ago were pretty staunch climate deniers, really welcome, you know, talking to Olympians about climate change, talking about what they've done. We met with one senator that said, I'm a Republican. And because I said climate change is real, the Koch brothers aren't going to back my election. And, you know, because of that, because of money and politics, like I'm probably going to lose my election, which is, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues going on there, but um, I think it's, it was really seeing change and saying like, Hey, what we're doing is actually, you know, moving the needle forward and it is progress. And so to me, that's success. I think if we're in a place where it feels like we're treading water or we're not getting anywhere, that's, um, you know, it's time to change the tactics. What do you know now that you wish you could turn around and tell younger Lindsay? <laughs> I think um, I think young people and I, I don't know, I hate that word, actually young people. But I think when, when we are younger, we really worry a lot about finding our place in the world and figuring out who we're going to be and what we're going to be. And will we you know, find all the right opportunities? And I think the reality is that. Um, you know, you will find your way on a path. And there isn't, this is definitely a a quote that other people have said a lot, but you know, when you come to an intersection, 
it doesn't really matter whether you go left or right. It just matters that you make a choice to move forward and that you keep going. And, you know, there isn't a wrong direction. It's just going to take your life maybe in a place that you wouldn't have explored otherwise, but there's always going to be a path. And I think when I was younger, I, you know, worried a lot, like, will I find the perfect job? And in, in exactly this, you know, I became pretty obsessed with this niche of environmental advocacy in the outdoor industry and, um, you know, really worked hard to, to find jobs in that arena. But, um, you know, there were a lot of other jobs along the way. And I think I would have been equally excited. That's not to say I don't absolutely love what I do at POW, but, um, you know, it's not really worth being anxious or spending time worrying about, you know, the, the choice um, in the intersection. It's just about making that choice and going. Well said. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you so much for being such an incredible policy wonk badass. and for all of the work you're doing with POW and beyond uh, you are truly an inspiration so thanks so much for taking the time today to share your story and inspire us to get uh, to get involved I, I know I feel inspired that was the art of living extraordinarily defined by Lindsay Burgoyne if this episode has gotten you fired up, then please consider going to protectourwinters.org and sign up for the newsletter to receive climate news and action to fuel that fire. If you're interested in learning more about POW's Hot Planet Cool Athlete Assembly Program, or you just want to book one right away, you can also do that on POW's website. A couple other things, Lindsay mentioned the website Skeptical Science, so you can seamlessly debunk the misinformation that's out there around climate change. And then stay tuned for the launch of the website for POW's sister nonprofit, POW Action Fund, which will be diving into midterm elections this summer and fall and launching a guide to help you vote for climate-friendly officials in November. On that same note, right now you can text POW2018 to the number 52886 and you'll be sent everything you need for these oh-so-important upcoming midterm elections from registration deadlines to polling locations and that information on the candidates who are climate champions that will also be on the POW Action Fund site. You'll be equipped with everything you need to be a POW activist. I will be taking the next four weeks to travel, explore, and collect more episodes for The Art of Living Extraordinarily. So in the meantime, please reach out to me through the comments section in iTunes or through social media. I'm at Gretchen Blyler, G-R-E-T-C-H-E-N-B-L-E-I-L-E-R on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love to hear how this episode might have inspired you or left you with any new insights. I also want to hear what you want to hear more of from these episodes and who you want to hear from. And if you like what you heard, please click subscribe so you can continue to hear more. And a rating is always appreciated too. Thanks so much for listening and see you in a month.